All right. Today we are continuing through Matthew. We are close to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, believe it or not. I know some of you won't believe it till you see it. Ye of little faith. <laughs> so in 1958, about 65 years ago, a then young professor named Morton Smith, who was at Columbia University, claimed to have visited a monastery in Jerusalem and photographed, again, what he claimed was the lost ending to the Gospel of Mark. That the Gospel of Mark, as we have it in the scripture, it does end kind of abruptly, and so people have speculated, was there more? And he claims to have found the more. And this was a big, big deal, because his discovery, he wrote in a book called The Secret Gospel, changed the perception of Jesus, changed the perception of how people understood Jesus, and if you want to get into all the details about it, you can just type in uh, the secret gospel or secret mark, and Wikipedia will pop it up and it'll give you background about it. But to make a long story short, this created quite a stir because at the time he was a young professor. And to find something of this magnitude is the sort of thing that makes a person's academic career. I mean, for the rest of his life, this makes his academic career. Because one of the things in academia, some of you are in academia, you know, that you're kind of expected if you want to be con considered relevant, you have to come up with new discoveries or new things in your field. To get the PhD that many of you have or, or are working toward, you have to come up with kind of a new concept or something that, that forwards or advances the field of study you are in. And with the Bible, this is particularly difficult because the Bible's been around for 2,000 years and people have been studying it and coming up with ideas about it for centuries. I, it's no joke when I tell you now that a lot of people get their PhDs written on parts of the scripture they call the pericope. The pericope is not the verse. It's not even the words of the verse. It's parts of words because they have to try and find something that no one has ever talked about before. So they cut it down. So not You get several PhDs now that aren't written about verses or books. They're written about parts of words. So to discover the lost ending to the Gospel of Mark, that is a big deal. And it was especially also a big deal because this is coming on the heels about 10 years after one of the biggest archaeological and biblical discoveries of history was made, which was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were a bunch of scrolls that were, were hidden in caves around the Dead Sea. So, now Morton Smith... He was an interesting character in and of himself. He was a former Episcopalian, which is the same thing as Anglican. It's the American version of Anglican. Former Episcopalian priest who had turned an atheist. And in spite of his atheism, he still was teaching religion and theology at Columbia. He believed Jesus was a magician and nothing more than that. But what was intriguing is that he only wrote a few papers about this discovery of his. He didn't write, he didn't really base his academic career on this discovery but a lot of people around him did. A lot of people spent their entire careers studying this, uh, these photographs, studying the, what it means, trying to figure out how this links into some other letters that were found. And about 2008, after Morton Smith had died, this discovery was proven beyond a doubt to have been a hoax. 
It was a big lie. And the streams of evidence came from numerous sources. And if you want to read about it, there's a book called here, The, uh, the, Gospel, of Mo- the Gospel Hoax, Morton Smith's Invention of the Secret Mark. And in spite of all the evidence, though, that this is a hoax, there are still people that hold that, the, that the, he did find something that is the true ending to the Gospel of Mark. And this is, this is obviously mostly in academic circles because you probably, many of you haven't ever heard this or, or even known about this. But why would people hold to something that has clearly been shown as a hoax? Well, one guy gave the answer pretty clearly. In a seminar in 2008 when they were discussing this, and this is still hotly debated, though the vast majority of scholarship knows that it's a hoax and accepts that it's a hoax. One guy stated why he was holding on to it because he said secret mark cannot be a hoax because if it is, my entire career has meant nothing. Because some guys, some scholars put their entire careers into writing about this secret, secret mark. And their entire careers were for nothing. Which is devastating to the academic world where you hope that the only really stand or place you'll have in history is in the scholarship that you've done. And to have everything you've written, everything you've taught, every seminar you've given through your entire career for nothing is hard to swallow. And sometimes we're not so different. As human beings, we have a tendency to want to deny a truth which is right in front of us because to admit the truth means that we'd have to change the way we live our lives. Because when we run into an objective truth that cannot be disputed, then we have to adjust our lives to that truth. And in spite of people claiming that they want to know the truth, we tend to deny things which conflict with our worldview. It's just a human nature thing. I can't tell you how often in churches I've had people say, I want to be a person that knows the truth. And if I'm doing something that's causing a problem in the church, I want people to tell me about it. And you know what I've found out over the years? No, you don't. You get defensive. People get defensive. People don't really want to hear it. They have all kinds of excuses they start to come up with. When truth forces us to alter our lives or or. Look closely at who we are as a person and what we believe. We don't like it. Years ago when Cindy and I were traveling around in in, uh, South Africa, the southern part of Africa, we were up in Zimbabwe. And for those of you who may not know, Zimbabwe and Zambia used to be known collectively as this country called Rhodesia, named after a guy named Cecil Rhodes. And uh, we were hitchhiking around and we, we came across this old guy, this old British guy. And uh, he began talking with us, and, and when he found out that we were Americans, he spent about an hour convincing us that the United States would be better off coming back into the arms of the British Empire. And he was going on and on about this, you know, that the British Empire is really where it's at, and you should come, the United States should come back into the arms of the British Empire. And in fact, the scholarship called the Rhodes Scholar, have you ever heard about people who are Rhodes Scholars? This comes from Cecil Rhodes, and that was why he funded the Rhodes Scholarship, was to educate the best and the brightest in the United States in England with the idea that they would go back to the U.S., become leaders in the U.S., and bring the United States back into the British Empire. 
That was the plan behind Rhodes Scholars. And so he went on, he was telling us about this, you know, you can just kind of imagine, we're kind of whatever. And, he, and his story was, you know, he had come to Rhodesia back when it was Rhodesia, and it was part of the British Empire, and he had lived his life in what was now, in a, now it was Zimbabwe. He was this elderly guy, and he, was, he just really didn't have much left, but he had this dream of the British Empire. And then he kind of opened up a little bit of his soul when he said, he's kind of looking, uh, after he got done talking with us, he kind of sighed and he goes, you know, we were an empire. <laughs> and I just kind of went, yep, that ship has sailed, buddy. <laughs> but he didn't want to—he didn't want to deal with the truth that the ship had sailed. You know that the country he lived in was no longer called Rhodesia; it was now called Zimbabwe, and it wasn't one country. It had been split into two: Zambia and Zimbabwe. And, and the British Empire was never going to be the empire upon which the sun never sat uh, set again. It was done. We don't like truths when they alter our perception of reality. Well, in the passage we're reading today in Matthew, we, we read about the first attempt to deny the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Matthew is unique in that it has this little caveat in it, and so we're going to look at that today. Today isn't going to be a typically Easter sermon, where usually the resurrection is the focus, and rightly so, uh, on Easter we're going to look at this other aspect because we don't get the opportunity very often to look at the scripture and look at this other aspect where faith is attempted to be denied. So let's read. So we're going to start in 27, then we go into 28. So this is after the uh, crucifixion. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he, being Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said... After three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, the seal isn't just like a, uh, a wax seal like you think on a letter. A seal was like metal straps put around the stone so it couldn't move. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you still see some old tombs that have these straps on it, or you see the remnants of it from the rust since they've gone away. So it wasn't a simple little wax seal. It was a seal made of steel. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. They fainted, in other words. The angel said to the woman, Women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman, women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, 
clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor because these were Roman soldiers, just remember. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So the Gospel of Matthew is the only gospel that weaves into the resurrection account this conspiracy theory around Jesus' resurrection. It's the only one. Mark, Luke, and John, they really don't deal with Pilate after the... uh, After the trial of Jesus, the Romans don't have much to to do with the story after the crucifixion. But Matthew includes this story. And I think there's a reason why Matthew includes it is because he had heard these rumors that the disciples, which included him, had stolen Jesus' body while the guards slept. And Matthew wanted to set the story straight because this was a rumor that personally involved him. And if you've ever been lied about, you know how irritating and frustrating it can be to have people believe something about you that just simply isn't true. And it can be devastating, too. When I was in high school, there was this one guy who just, for who knows why, but there's this rumor that started about him. And it changed the trajectory of his entire school career, starting from about eighth grade on, because it was a rumor that wasn't true. But people associated this rumor with this poor guy. And it affected his social life. It affected his academic life. It affected everything about him. It was a lie that wasn't true. Being lied about, having to carry the burden of being lied about, is a horrible burden to have to carry. And Matthew, I think, didn't like this. One, it it undermined, of course, the resurrection of Christ, but also undermined his own integrity and the integrity of the other disciples. And I also believe that Matthew just found the idea of a group of Roman soldiers, soldiers who had been on the edge of a riot just that previous day with all these events surrounding Jesus, that these Roman soldiers who knew that the penalty of sleeping on guard duty was death, which isn't, which isn't unique to the Romans, sleeping on guard duty, the penalty of that being death is a long soldiering Uh, tradition, that they would fall asleep, all of them, and not wake up while the seal of the tomb is being broken, which is metal, and don't wake up while a stone which weighs at least a thousand kilograms, if not more, if you go there, you realize these are big stones, gets rolled away, and then the disciples go in there and pick up the body of Jesus and are able to scuttle off into the night without the Roman soldiers waking up, is absolutely ridiculous. It is as stupid as it sounds. I mean, I had a, when I've told you before, my university university pastor was a former Green Beret, and and he talked about this passage one time, and I remember it because he said, he's the one that said, falling asleep on guard duty is just a no-go when you're in the military. 
Because your brother soldiers are depending upon you to keep them safe. And he said that in the Green Berets, they wouldn't light a cigarette because that flash of light would make their night vision go down. They wouldn't sit because to sit would lead to, to falling asleep. And if they had to sit for some reason, they would put their gun with the bayonet underneath their chin. So if they were to fall asleep, they'd jab themselves in the chin. And he said, you didn't want to go back to the rest of your guys with any marks under your chin. And if you were caught sleeping on guard duty, it was as severe a penalty as you can get. And the other guys, your soldiers, your brothers, they were like, hey, man, if you're not going to watch our back, then you deserve everything you're going to get. And that's been a soldiering tradition. And the Romans were the same way. The idea that they would fall asleep at these metal straps weren't going to be heard as they're broken. The stone doesn't, doesn't wake the soldiers up as it rolls away. And the grunting and groaning of carrying out a body as you run off into the night isn't going to wake people up as ridiculous. But this rumor persisted up until the time that Matthew's gospel was written. And to some, it still is today. You'll still hear people say, well, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. His disciples probably just stole the body. And they say that without really going through the process of what that means. But there's other theories to try and deny the resurrection. One of the theories out there is called the forgotten tomb theory. The forgotten tomb theory says everyone forgot where they buried Jesus. Yeah, they forgot. You know, that, that span of one day, poof, where'd we put them? And it says that when, when the Marys, both Mary, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the, the mother of James and John, when they go to the tomb, they go to the wrong one. And they see that it's open and they misinterpret it as thinking that Jesus rose from the dead. And then all the disciples go to the wrong tomb. And the ridiculousness of this is found in Matthew's gospel when he points out the fact that this was not some tomb that was randomly chosen that Jesus was buried in. We hear about a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. It says, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloak, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb prepared for himself, cut out of the rock. And he gave that tomb to Jesus' body out of respect for Jesus. He was, this, he was kind of one of these secret disciples. He rolled the stone in front of the entrance and the tomb and went away. And look what he says. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. They were there, sitting opposite. So the idea that they forgot where Jesus was buried is as dumb as it sounds. But that's one of the theories. There's another theory out there called the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that Jesus just fainted on the cross. He passed out from lack of blood. And then he was put into the tomb. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't. He woke up. He woke up and he managed to extract himself from the, from the linens that they had wrapped him in. Which if you've ever been in a tight sleeping bag, it's difficult enough to move your arms. You're not going to be able to, to move your arms if you're wrapped like, you know, in tight linens. But he did. And then this guy who had been beaten, who had been whipped, who had been nailed to a cross who had had a spear shoved into his side, likely piercing his heart, which is the blood in the water that talks about coming out. If you pierce the bag, the perineum around your heart is what it looks like. Blood and water come out. This guy managed to get up, 
roll the stone away on his own, which was sealed from the outside, let's not forget, and managed to slip away without the guards even noticing. Yeah, it's as dumb as it sounds. Remember I told you PhDs have been written about some crazy things? These are the ideas that are out there. People believe this crazy stuff. And there's other theories that are equally ridiculous. But the question is, why did these theories start? I mean, we see it in Matthew. It begins right away. Pretty much the very next day, you start having theories to come up to deny the resurrection. Why? Well, it's like I said, if the resurrection is true, then it vindicates everything Jesus said about himself. And if everything Jesus said about himself is true, I'm the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. If it is true that when he told his disciple Philip, Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When he talks about being the Lamb of God, taking upon the sins of the world, if all those things are true, then it affects our lives. And we have to adjust our life to that truth. And if we're unwilling to adjust our lives to truth, then we suffer the consequences of that. If you're unwilling to adjust your life to basic truths, then you suffer the consequence. Say you're driving down the road and you get told, you see it with your own eyes, the bridge is out crossing the Rhine. And you decide, well, you know what? I'm not going to let that truth adjust my life. I'm just going to keep going. Then you're going to suffer the consequences as you drive off the edge of the bridge into the Rhine. And as dumb as it sounds that people would do something like that, this is really what people are doing when they deny the resurrection. They're denying a truth that is going to affect their life. And, you, and we look at this and we say, well, people, I can't believe people do that. We do it today. We do it all the time in society today. This next little bit is going to probably tick off some of you, but that's okay. This is just my opinion. But what's an example of something like this going on today? Well, in my opinion, science and observation tells us global warming is a reality. That climate is changing, and we are in the midst of crazy weather patterns. My own country, Florida, got nailed by a huge hurricane. Canada got hit by a hurricane. When does Canada get hit by a hurricane? But the, and a lot of it, the evidence says it has to do with the way we are living our lives as a species on the planet. But to change that, to really absorb that belief, that truth, would mean that we have to alter the way we live. We have to alter the way that we consume energy. We have to alter the way, that, the expectations we have, particularly in the West, of everything being food is plentiful, energy is cheap. Water flows freely from the tap. That's going to have to all change if we're going to take this seriously. The cars we drive. I used to drive a diesel. And then I heard the whole big story how VW lied about the whole diesel thing. It didn't make me stop driving my, v my diesel. Because that meant changing my life is going to cost me money. So I drove the diesel. And then I gave it to my daughter. And she drove it for a while. And now I have a gas using car. I don't think that's really all that much better. But what are we going to do? I don't want to change my life. Do you want to change your life? 
And then the alternatives are like, well, we're just going to replace all this huge amounts of energy that we use with fossil fuel with wind. Even though all the numbers, all the, all the studies in this tell us, and we're, no, we're not. So we're, we're continuing down a road of saying, of denial. We're denying that there's a problem, and we're denying that the solution that we're being presented with isn't going to work. We do this all the time. We do it with politics. We do it with social issues. We do this all the time. If we have to adjust our lives to a truth around us, then we tend to be resistant to that truth. And this is just who we are as people. If there's a truth that's going to require us to evaluate and change our lives, then we tend to be resistant to that. And we do it politically, we do it socially, and we do it with our faith. And the question we have to ask ourselves as believers is, does this truth, does truth have to be feared? Because there are, there are times, and, and when I'm talking about truth here, I'm not talking about subjective opinion. I'm talking about objective truth. And that's, there's not too many things that are just purely objective. But I'm talking about objective truth. Do we have to fear it? Because some people do. And in that place of fear, they stop thinking and they just start trying to defend, defend, defend. One of the things that I had to grow up with, because my background is in uh, plant science, is the issue of evolution. And I find it interesting that once Christians kind of got their feet back under them and they began to really question the theory of evolution, which talks about uh, beneficial mutation that has to replicate itself, become dominant in the population, and before it can do all those things, it has to be beneficial. Those things together are almost as a mathematical impossibility that we've, in just the short amount of time that life has been on the planet, according to science, that we would evolve from a virus to a human being at that point. It just doesn't work. And it wasn't until people really started looking at it and they stopped trying to fight back with slogans and they really started to look at what, was, what we see that people began to go, well, you know, this is a little different. And if you go to the Neanderthal Museum today, just down the road, you'll find that they don't talk about the theory of evolution in the same way they did 30 years ago when I was in school because they've realized that this dogma didn't hold water. It wasn't true, and they've had to change how they see difference within species as opposed to beneficial mutation. But we don't like that. We fight against these things. And the question is how do we deal with truth when it's objective, when it's right in front of us? I had a professor one time in seminary. I had, I've told you before, I had some tremendous professors in seminary, people who were believers and who were deep thinkers. And one time we asked our professor, what about aliens? What if we find out there is intelligent alien life? How will that affect our theology? We, we didn't have much to do that day. We, were, we got done with the lesson. We were just talking. And, uh, and so someone asked that question to him. What would, we, what would we do if we found intelligent alien life? which is pure speculation, by the way. If you notice all the, oh, we're going to find life on Mars, and we didn't. And, oh, we're going to find this, and we don't. Oh, we found evidence of bacteria in this meteor. No, we didn't. But anyways, what if we did? And our professor said something which has stayed with me ever since. And he was, a, he was an amazing guy. His name was Stan Nelson. He says, I believe all truth comes from God. If it's true, then it's from God. If it's from God, I do not need to fear it but I need to try to understand it. And I thought this was profound and simple at the same time. All truth comes from God. God is truth. If it's true, it's from God. And if it's from God, we don't need to fear it. We need to understand it. 
try to understand as best we can. And the truth is, and this is where things start getting a little bit bumpy in the sermon here, there's a lot of people who are going to go to hell because they don't want to deal with the truth of Jesus' resurrection. They just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with the fact that it requires your life to adjust if Jesus indeed rose from the grave. But just as equally, and I think even more important, a lot of, Christ, a lot of people are going to hell because Christians don't believe in this truth passionately enough to actually tell people about it. If you believed passionately that this is a fact, that the people you love and care are going to go to hell, which isn't just a state of mind. See, we try and, we try and the way we try and deal with this, we try and say things like, well, hell's not that big a deal. It's just a state of mind. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses say, there is no hell, you're just annihilated, which seems better than everlasting suffering. We try and get around these things because we don't want to deal with the uncomfortable truth. And we're the same way. We don't want to adjust our lives to dealing with the truth that the people we love, some of the people we love will suffer eternally because we felt awkward talking to them about the salvation found in Jesus Christ. Because the salvation found in Jesus Christ through the, his resurrection is the thing that the gospel, that the Bible, the New Testament calls, Paul calls something of first importance. He says this in Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. This is the thing upon which you stand. It has defined you. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he says, this is the thing of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The Apostle Paul, in, the, in his letters, he doesn't like to say people who are Christians died. He'll say they fell asleep. He does this more than once because the idea in his mind is they're asleep until the resurrection comes and then they'll rise again. But when this was written, and it's important to keep this in mind, when this was written, Someone could have gone to Jerusalem and fact-checked this statement to see if this was true. Because the people who had witnessed the resurrection of Christ at the time this was written, many of them were still alive. And this is the thing he considers of first importance. And what he does when he talks about Peter, the 12, and then 500, in Jewish law, something is considered true if it's witnessed and testified by two to three witnesses. So he starts first with Peter, and he knows if it's just one, one testimony, that's not going to be enough. So then he says the 12, which is three to four times the amount that you need in Jewish law to make something true. And then he goes beyond that. He says, and then there is the 500 that he appeared to at the same time. You know, one of the hoaxes that we sometimes hear about, and you probably, if you watch YouTube at all, is the moon landing hoax. Have you heard about this? That the whole thing was a big hoax, the moon landing? 
And one of the things that people say is makes that idea that it was a hoax impossible is that you would have to keep about a quarter of a million people all on the same page with the same lie in order for it to be a hoax because so many other people were involved. It's impossible. Someone who was deeply involved would have said, you know what, it's all a big lie. But no one has. And it's the same thing here. 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And let's remember that these apostles, most of them were willing to die for the sake of what they'd seen, the testimony of the risen Christ. They were willing to be tortured and to die. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to be tortured and die for something I know is not true. And yet, in the early church, the tradition tells us all the apostles except for John died before denying the truth of the resurrected Christ. We have to keep that in mind. Because how many of you would die for something you knew was a lie? But they did. Because it was true. And the truth of what they had witnessed gave them the courage to endure the pain and the fear that many have of what death involves because they had seen the resurrection and they believed that they would participate in that resurrection. Life to them didn't end at the end of a Roman sword. Or in Peter's case, crucified himself upside down. So I want to close by asking you this. How is your life adjusting to the truth of Christ? How does his life, his death for your sins, his resurrection, how does that affect your life today? How does it affect the way you live? Paul calls these the things of first importance, the most important aspect of our faith, what Jesus Christ did for us and what his resurrection demonstrates to us about the nature of God, the nature of sin, the nature of forgiveness. How does this affect your life? Am I living? Are you living? Are we living in such a way that this reflects this is the first priority of our life? Now, I'm not telling you how it should look. I'm not telling you how it should look in your life. But I'm asking you, does it have that place? Is it truly a place of first importance? And the one you need to ask isn't me, isn't someone sitting next to you. You need to go in prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God. Does my life reflect the things of first importance for which you are willing to empty yourself of your glory, to come and take upon yourself the nature of a human being, capable of feeling temptation, capable of feeling pain, capable of feeling all the, the negative and positive human emotions that are out there, suffer and die upon a cross for us. Does that affect and change my life? And not just suffer and die for us, but to rise again, to vindicate that everything you said is true. Holy Spirit, does my life reflect this as an issue of first importance? I'm not going to tell you what the Holy Spirit is going to say in your life, because maybe some of you, the Holy Spirit will say, hey, you're great. You're doing good. I suspect some of you, the Holy Spirit might say, not so much. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, I think you need to really ask yourself, why not? Are you going to let this span of 2,000 years be the excuse of saying, well, you know, it happened a long time ago. 
I don't see any direct witnesses today telling me, oh, there he is, risen, so therefore I'm not going to adjust my life to it. If that's what you want to do, fine. But truth doesn't change. You know? The earth was round 2,000 years ago. There's some people who today, unbelievably, think it's flat. It's still round. It was round then, it's round now. Truth doesn't change. It's objective. Jesus rose 2,000 years ago. It was true then, it's true now. It doesn't change. Time doesn't erase truth. So if you're not a believer, you better know why. And don't follow stupid things like the swoon theory or they forgot where they buried him theory. Because if, you if you're going to stake your soul on things like that, then you're putting your soul on the sand, as Jesus would say. You're building your soul in the hopes upon sand. And it's not going to last. But if you build your soul in your hope upon the rock of Christ, then the winds can come, the rains will fall, and it will still stand. So where do you build your hope? Have you adjusted your life to the truth of Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have in your word these acts that took place within our history. That it's not just a, you know, it's not just some mythology that we're trying to find value in, like Greek mythology, but that these are acts within history. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to convey to the people around us who listen to the the lies that began all the way back. We even have it here in the Gospel of Matthew. That begin all the way back to just a few days after your burial and your resurrection. And somehow the disciples stole your body away. In spite of the fact of there being a Roman guard, a sealed tomb with a big old stone. They managed to steal it away. And Lord, help us to help. To, to guide those of us who are believers to, first of all, look at our own lives. Do we live as if these are the things of first importance? Do our priorities reflect that? But also, secondly, to be aware that a lot of people around us don't believe in you simply because they don't think that that's really something that they have to give any of their attention to. It's just a story. May or may not have happened. May we help them see that this happened, it had lots of witnesses. And it has carried with it the testimony of the blood of the martyrs who refused to say what they saw was a lie and were willing to die because they saw a truth that they believed would carry them through this life and into the next. And may we have that same kind of courage and tenacity as we share the gospel of Christ in a world that is getting crazier and crazier every year. It seems like every year we look at the, the one that's passed and think, wow, it can't be crazier than 2020 was when we were in the middle of corona. Then 2021 rolls around, it's crazier. And this year, this year is, it looks like it's heading straight towards a whole new level of insane and crazy. And we pray, we pray that it doesn't, but it won't surprise us if it does. God, help us to be salt and light in difficult times. May we be a people of truth. First of all, a people who the truth reflects in our own lives. And then may we share it with gentleness and respect, but share it nonetheless 
to people who ask us for the reason, for the hope that we have, that you are our hope. You are our Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.